Before we begin this podcast, please be advised that the following episode contains language that some listeners may find offensive and inappropriate. The opinions expressed by the host and guests are their own and do not reflect the views of the podcast producers. Listener discretion is advised. I was never um, a violent criminal. I never did violent crime, right? So we went back and I went to turn to leave again, and he pulled a pistol on me. What was your reaction when he caught me? And I'm looking, I'm like, and he's tripping. So he was still after you with all those bullets yeah. in him? Yeah. Then he was still fighting. Dude was extremely high, right? According to his blood work, he was like high, high, like through the roof high, right? I had made some statements that was coerced by some police officers. He took me to trial on two murders for one body. You are now listening to the podcast, Voices of a Killer. I'm bringing you the stories from the perspective of the people that have taken the life of another human and their current situation thereafter in prison. You will see that although these are the folks that we have been programmed to hate, they all have something in common. They are all humans like us that admit that they made a mistake. Will you forgive them or will you condemn them? They are currently serving time for their murders and they give us an inside glimpse of what took place when they killed and their feelings on the matter now. Here are the voices of those who have killed. In this week's episode of Voices of a Killer, we journey back to the early 1990s in St. Louis, Missouri, a time and place where the crack epidemic was shaping communities and lives. Amidst this backdrop, we meet Kawan Johnson, a young man entangled in a complex relationship with Alvin Foster, a relationship marked by intimidation and a struggle for respect in a community grappling with the harsh realities of drug culture and street politics. This episode delves deep into the night that changed everything for Kawan, a night of confrontation and a deadly struggle that would lead to Alvin's untimely death and Kawan's life sentence. Kwan's story, however, goes beyond a personal tragedy. It casts a spotlight on broader systemic issues such as mass incarceration and the prosecutorial tactic of charging in the alternative, where defendants face multiple charges for a single incident, increasing the likelihood of conviction. Kwan's case also touches on themes of racial discrimination in the justice system, echoing a nationwide pattern where communities of color disproportionately bear the brunt of aggressive policing and sentencing. His experience raises critical questions about fairness and justice in America's legal system. When we speak to Kawan from behind bars, we will see this incident and the world through his eyes. So sit back and listen closely as we explore what really happened on that fateful night in this episode of Voices of a Killer. So Kawan, where are you from? From St. Louis, Missouri. How would you describe your childhood growing up? Was it rough? Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of uh, physical abuse, some verbal abuse, yeah, mental abuse. Yeah. Did yeah. You, your parents were abusive. Yeah. How would you? How'd you do in school? Not well. Not well. 
I hated school, to be honest. <laughs> I hated school. I felt out of place. Um, I felt that uh, it wasn't a place that, that was for me. The place didn't understand me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Did you get in fights in school, get in trouble and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe probably grade school I did, but as I went up into school, into junior high and, and high school, that, that stuff, they yeah, tapered off. When's the first time you ever got in trouble with the law? As a kid, and I know it was as a kid, uh, stealing, stealing candy from, I think, Magic Market or something like that. And, but all the police officers, they all liked my mother. My mother was really pretty. So what they did, he just, they just brought me straight home to her, and, and she beat the hell out of me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Did you have siblings? Yeah. Yeah, I have. I'm the baby. I'm the youngest. My mother had five children, and my father, he ended up, I guess when he left my mother, he uh, got with a woman that had already had two kids, and she ended up having two more by him. So I got a, two younger siblings and two step-siblings on my father's side. I was being mostly raised with my mother. I was what they call a oops baby, right? And whenever, whenever my daddy would get mad at me, he said, boy, you don't hear because of rubber butt. You know what I mean? Right, right. But that's the only reason you hear it. We should know. So, like, my, my oldest sister, she's 19. I, I got a niece that's, like, a year under me. So it was really just me and my mother and my sister that's eight years older than me. The rest of my brothers and sisters by my mother, they were all grown and moved out. Because my sister, she went back and forth to juvenile a lot, right? My mother was abusive to her, too, verbally and physically. So she started getting in trouble at a young age as well, right? And she started running away from home, going to juvenile. So it was really... For a lot of time, it was just me and my mother from the ages probably maybe of seven on up. So then I ended up having to move uh, with my father. Because my father, he, my mother worked the swing shift at General Electric. And so then we're, I did, had to do two weeks with my father, two weeks with my mother. It was real stressful. Yeah. Do you think that your, your mom, your parents being uh, aggressive with you and your siblings, do you think that kind of shaped the way you grew up and, and who you became? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And what absolutely. way? Do you think it made yeah. you more aggressive as a person? As a child, it, it, it did. It, it, it really taught me that the way you solve problems is with your fist or when you solve problems out of anger. So I would say, yeah. I would say, yeah. So, Kwan, you're in prison for a, a pretty bad crime, murder. You pled not guilty, mm-hmm. and this happened in 1991. What I want to know, Quan, is before this alleged crime happened, what kind of person were you then? What, how would you describe yourself? Uh, <laughs> young, dumb, full of fun. Young, dumb, full of fun. I wasn't. I was never a violent criminal. I never did violent crime, but I was a thief. Coming up in those days, as a, as a young man, they didn't have jobs for us we couldn't get we might get like a uh, i think my first job was like at popeye's and i made i think it was minimum wage at that time i think was three dollars and 25 cents how old were you in 1991 in 91 i was 20 okay i was 20 but at at 16 as a kid like i say they didn't have they didn't have jobs for us i was bad i was at that time at that age my mother 
she could whoop me. She ain't there. She got arrested for uh, whooping me, beating me, right? And they, people, my neighbors called the child abuse hotline on her. So she stopped whooping me like around thir- when I was 13, right? But, um, but then she was real verbal after that, right? I, I guess I was in rebellion. I was a rebellious kid. Probably had a lot of resentments. It's probably really how to describe it. Probably needed some counseling, some something like that. They didn't really have no way to express my issues. And that's the kind of everything was like bottled up. But like I say, not being able to have a job and things like that. You know, you want at, at, at 16 years old, 15, 16, you smelling yourself. I was very good looking. All the girls wanted me. So you want to be able to go to the movies with your girlfriend. You want, you want a car. I couldn't afford none of that stuff. So I had to find ways on, on my own to figure out, uh, uh, find ways on my own to, to get these things. And which led to me as a young man working for my sister's boyfriend selling drugs. Growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, Kwan Johnson's childhood was far from idyllic. He describes it as filled with physical, verbal, and mental abuse, painting a picture of a turbulent home life. Kawan's struggles began early, marked by confrontations with the law for minor offenses like stealing candy and overshadowed by a sense of alienation and resentment. The abusive environment at home, coupled with his feeling of being out of place at school, set the stage for a challenging upbringing. Kawan's narrative provides insight into the impact of his family dynamics. Being the youngest among several siblings, he often found himself isolated particularly as his older sister frequently faced juvenile detention. This isolation was compounded by a living arrangement that shuffled him between his mother and father. His recounting of these early years reveals a young man grappling with the consequences of an aggressive household, learning that problems were solved with fists or through anger. This environment, Kwan believes, undoubtedly shaped his aggressive tendencies during his youth. As he transitioned into his teenage years, Kwan faced the harsh realities of limited job opportunities and economic hardship. This lack of prospects led him down a path of petty theft and eventually into the world of dealing drugs, working for his sister's boyfriend. It was a survival tactic, born out of necessity, to obtain the things he wanted but couldn't afford, a reflection of a young man trying to find his footing in a world that offered him few opportunities. I wanted to know if this was what eventually led him to speak with us from behind bars. Back then, in the 80s, this was before the uh, crack epidemic came. We sold our PCP to weed, mainly PCP. My job was they was in the back, in the alley in the back of the house, and they was they would, they would do the dippers, right? They would dip, and I was to, to control the, the, the traffic flow. Like, I'd run out to the car, be like, what you want? How many you want? Man, they you know what? Give me a two. And, and I guess it was pretty good because they came from all over back and got them, made a lot of money. And I would run back and they would have them. I'd take it out, run, take it to the car, keep the traffic moving. Would you say you're the, back then, you're pretty much a, like a career criminal? Career criminal? Yeah. No, hell no. No, you can't be a criminal. You can't be a career criminal with no full scene. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's just, it's really about environment and opportunities. You know what I mean? You got to spend time with your children. You got to talk with your children and develop their mental, develop their intellect, teach them how to communicate. None of that was done 
for me. I get I, I forgive my mother because she was born in what thirty six. She had been married. She went to some of dropped out of school to get married to my older brother's sisters. To, uh, my, my older sisters and brother's husband, which was Pontus. So she, my mama didn't know nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. She was a type. She'd be smoking the joint and be like, boy, you see it? Be like, yeah, she don't smoke this shit a kid. Then she'd hit it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> she's one of them type of brothers, you know? Boy, you need to go read. You go, you need, you go read some books or something. But I never, other than TV guy, I never saw her read nothing. But my father, on the other hand, was very intelligent was very bright. And I, I, I didn't know until after he had died and I read his obituary, but this motherfucker, he fought in the Korean War, ran for mayor. Yeah. But never, never done. He took me fishing and I mean, introduced me to that, but all the time that we was out on that bass boat, it was just complete silence. In the 1980s, America faced an impending drug crisis. An era before the crack epidemic took full hold, one where substances like PCP were rampant on the streets. Kawan's involvement in the drug trade as a young man in St. Louis offers a glimpse into this tumultuous period. The emergence of crack cocaine would soon overshadow drugs like PCP, leading to a full-blown epidemic that devastated countless lives and neighborhoods. Kawan's narrative illustrates the reality of those caught in the tide of these shifting drug trends often driven by a lack of opportunities and environmental factors rather than a predetermined path to criminality. As he says, he doesn't consider himself a career criminal, and rather he was let down not only by his environment, but a lack of nurturing from his parents. While this did eventually lead Kwan ending up behind bars, I wanted to hear the story from his point of view. Kwan, let's figure out why you're in prison, because... You're in prison for a pretty serious crime, and you're saying that yeah. you're completely innocent. The only thing that I could find on you is, and, and we already well, know this happened. I'm not saying that I'm. Go ahead. I'm not saying that I'm completely innocent. I'm not saying that I'm completely innocent. Okay. I accept responsibility for my part. You know what I mean? But what I am saying is I don't deserve life without parole. I don't deserve to be locked up for 33 years. Did you kill someone? That's what I'm saying. Absolutely. You did? Absolutely. The victim, Alvin Foster, is his name, is that correct? Yeah, he was my assailant. He was my name. I'm the victim, I feel. I feel he would be his assailant, my attacker. Okay. He attacked me. Okay. First of all, let's go piece by piece. How did you know Alvin? He was a guy that, that, that stayed down the street from me. Neighborhood bully, a Debo. If you ever saw Friday, he was like Debo. Okay. He, he was bullied. Bully the, bully the younger guys that were selling drugs in the neighborhood, smack them around, take the drugs and stuff like that. That's the type of guy he was. He pimped. He was pimping some of the girls to help get high so he could get high for free. Off their backs. He was that type of guy. So he's kind of struck the fear in people and got his respect that way? Yeah. So I would take yeah. it you guys weren't friends? Yeah, we were, we were all right. We never... No, I, I was 20. He never tried that with me until that day. Yeah. Yeah, but a lot of the younger guys, I was like 17, 18. He would do that to them, a lot of the smaller guys, right? He never tried any of that with me. We never had a problem. So take me back to that day. Let's just do it piece by piece. What time of day was, did this occur? It was at night. I think it's, let me see, it's been talking over 30 years, and I think it, it was... 
like around 11.30, 12 o'clock maybe. And tell me about the, the beginning of what happened, just the beginning. What happened to initiate you guys uh, having friction? He called me over to his house, his mother's house, because he was, he was drug addict. He was like, I was 20, he was like 35, 36, lived in his mother's basement. He called me over and that told me that he had some people over there that wanted to buy some drugs. And I was like, man, it's late. I'm in the, I'm in the bed, right? And he was like, man, it ain't going to take nothing but a minute. And since it was like right down the street, I was like, damn. All right. I hopped up, threw on my pants, ran down there, right? When I got down there, he stepped in, he pushed the door closed. We go downstairs in the basement, which is what we usually always conduct business. And when I got down there, there wasn't nobody there but him. And I was like, man, where they were everybody? He said, man, you took too long, man, they left. I said, man, I'm right down the street. I ain't took too long. He said, yes, you did, man. They didn't, man, they were waiting. I said, man, it took me like 10 minutes to get here, right? So we went back. I said, well, all right, then, man, I'm gone. So I went to leave. And he's like, damn, man, I got you. I tried to help you get some money, man. Told me a little something for free. I was like, I ain't got nothing for free to give you, man. So we went back and I went to turn to leave again. And he pulled a pistol on me. Where were you at when he pulled the pistol out? Were you standing at the door trying to leave? No, I was on my way back up the steps, me in the basement. When he pulled the pistol, I was like on the first or second step to go back up the steps. And when he pulled it, did he just show it to you? Or did he like actually point it and hold it pointed at you? No, he pulled it out. He was sitting on he was sitting on the couch and he pulled the pistol from up under, reached between his legs, and he pulled the pistol from under the pillow cushion that he was sitting on. Okay. Once he pulled the gun out, what was your reaction? What did you say to him? I, I, I was shocked. I was like, man, he ain't finna rob me for real. So I'm like, man, so I turned to go finish going up the steps. That's when he cocked the hammer on it. He was like, little nigga, bring your black ass off them steps. Yeah, what was your reaction when he caught the hammer? And I'm looking. I was like, I'm like, damn, this motherfucker. He tripping. You know what I'm saying? That was my reaction. Man. He tripping. Did you think you he know? was serious? And I was, oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, so I'm like, so he man, give me all that shit. Give me them rings, give me them chains, take them shoes off, give me all that shit. And I'm like, right here, man, you can have this shit. So I'm going in my pocket and reached out to him. And uh, he held out his hand. I reached past the gun, and it, as I dropped the dope in his hand, I grabbed the barrel of the pistol and pushed it down away from me towards the ground. Immediately, we start struggling over control of the weapon at that time. Kwan's reference to Foster as Debo, likening him to the iconic neighborhood bully from the movie Friday, starring Ice Cube, paints a vivid picture of the man he faced that fateful night. The character Debo in the 1995 movie, known for his imposing physical presence, and his intimidating demeanor became a lens through which Kwan perceived Alvin. Although there's not much out there on the internet about Alvin, what we do know is he was a veteran, evidenced by the inscription on his gravestone, Private First Class U.S. Marine Corps, Vietnam, a solemn reminder of his service in the Vietnam War, and that his tragic untimely passing was honored with a burial in a military cemetery. With his military background and no doubt imposing figure, it's certain that Alvin Foster would have been able to intimidate Kwan easily. Kwan recounts being invited to Alvin's home under the pretense of a drug deal only to find himself in a dangerous and unexpected situation. As Kwan was threatened, his decision to reach for the gun, a desperate attempt to redirect it away from himself, led to a struggle for control. This struggle, a life or death wrestle over the weapon, 
is where Kwan's narrative takes a dark turn. We'll find out exactly how it played out after the break. So he was still after you with all those bullets yeah. in him? Yeah. They were still fighting. Damn. Still fighting. So whenever you grabbed a hold of the gun, did you grab it good to where you had a hold of it and he had a hold of it? Yeah, he had his hand was on the the handle right. and the trigger. Yeah. I grabbed the barrel. On my, on my as I dropped the drugs in his towards his hand, I hurry up and grabbed the barrel of the pistol and pushed it down. Did he try to pull back and get it back from you? Yeah. The drugs ended up falling wherever they fell, on the table or whatever. And with my right hand, I grabbed the barrel and pushed it down. With my left hand, I palmed his hand. But his hand was on the butt of the gun. And I started trying to pull the gun away from him. We were struggling over the gun. Are y'all saying are y'all saying anything to each other when you're struggling? No, it's quiet. It's, it's, it's deadly quiet in there. It's just we just going at it. And um, at this point, your your senses are probably really high, trying to make sure you don't die, right? What did what you feel like yeah. at that point? Would you? She, he can't get. He ain't getting his gun. Right. You know what I mean? He ain't getting his. You know what I mean? I, I didn't really. My 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 thoughts was really blank. Everything, the adrenaline was up. Everything was just. Flowing, you know what I mean? Did you have a gun on you? I did not have a gun. So I did not have a weapon. Or so pick up where you left off with the struggle. Okay, so he's struggling, and he used he, he trying to use his body to because he's a big guy, right? Uh, he's using his body to try to knock me. We hit our heads hitting each other, our shoulders hitting each other, our legs crossing and everything under us, and we should, we really we trying to hold on. I'm trying to get it. And the gun go off, pow, right? He didn't say nothing. I didn't say nothing. We steady fighting. We steady wrestling for this gun. Get a, the, get a, hold on. Where'd the shot go off to? Did it hit right by you? I don't, don't know where it went. I didn't stop wrestling, trying to get that damn gun. And he didn't stop trying to keep me from getting it. Okay. We so, just kept going. I, I ended up getting a good grip on the handle. And I just Man, I was like everything I had in me. I just snatched it as hard as I could, snatched it. And when I snatched it, it went off again. Now, this time, somehow in us fighting, he's over by the steps, and my back is no longer to the steps. I'm facing by the steps, and he over by the steps now, right? Cornered you in? Yes. I didn't say anything, and I don't know why I did it, but it was like, I pointed the gun at him. It's like if to say freeze or stop. And he looked at me and rushed me and just rushed me. And when he rushed me, I was able to, I shot twice. And he hit me with like a football type block, right? Yeah. And it was so hard that he, the way he hit me that he knocked the gun out of my hand. The gun went one way and I went another way. But I grabbed him. And he went with me. I went, he knocked me up over the coffee table and onto the couch where he was at, where he was originally at, right? And uh, he landed on top of me and he started punching me in the face, right? Mm -hmm. Was anybody at this point struck by a bullet? Yeah, later I would find out that he was struck at this time three times. Okay. Once in the leg, once in the stomach, and once in the shoulder. And he's still fighting you at this point even though he's struck? Yeah, but only all the bullets pretty much went through. Only one that didn't go 
uh, through the work of one that had went in the bed and it had hit his finger. That it had hit his finger. So I don't know if that happened while he was wrestling, he got shot, or when I smashed it, or while he was rushing me. I don't know how, I don't know at what point he got shot in the in the leg or in the stomach or in the shoulder. Yeah. You know, but I do know from autopsy reports that's where he was. And he, man, he knocked me over. I'm on the couch. He punched me in the face. To keep him from knocking me unconscious, I grabbed him and pulled him close to me, right? When I when I pulled him close to me, he bit a plug out my face. He what? He bit a plug out my face. He bit you? He bit me in the face, yeah. Damn. He, he bit a plug in my face, right? And he was kneeing me. So like, when he was knee, trying to knee me in the groin and in the stomach, I rolled him over, pushed my face from his face and towards the, the pistol. He knocked me down. I didn't know where it was at. I just knew in the general direction that it went. So I went to go get it. By me not knowing where it was at, I didn't. I couldn't go just straight to it, right? But when he saw me going in that direction, he hopped up off the couch, ran up the steps, out and out the back door of the house, right? I grabbed the gun, grabbed my, the little drug I had dropped. I grabbed that and, and came out. I didn't know where he had went. Didn't know where he was. So my concern was was to get from point A to point B, which was from his house back to my house. And that's the way I ran. But I wasn't letting that pistol go. Yeah. And I was scared. Shit. I was I was never really a, a violent person with some fist fights or whatever. Yeah, I was I never shot nobody. I didn't, I didn't even own I never owned a gun. I didn't even own a gun. I ran home and in in the course of me running home it was this big ass bush. I'm talking this bush is huge, man. It was probably eight feet wide and nine feet tall, right? I'm running. I'm, I didn't run to the sidewalk. I, I ran and hit the grass. I'm running through the grass trying to get to my house. And when I'm, as I'm running by, he come out these damn bushes. And man, shit, out of panic and fear, I just turned and shot one time, man. And the man died instantly. And they found him when the, when the paramedics found him. They found him coming out of the bushes. His feet was in his bushes, and his body was laying outside of the bushes. That's what happened. The struggle, described by Kwan with vivid detail, paints a picture of desperation and survival. As Kwan grappled with Alvin for control of the gun, the tension escalated with each passing second. The encounter, a blur of motion and fear, sees Alvin using his strength to overpower Juan. Their bodies colliding with force. In a moment of sheer instinct, Juan managed to gain control of the gun. With the roles reversed, he found himself pointing the weapon at Alvin, who, despite being wounded, launched a ferocious counterattack. The struggle intensified, crashing over a coffee table and culminating in a brutal face-to-face -face confrontation on the couch. Alvin. Resilient even in his wounded state, bit Quan's face in a desperate move, leading to a gruesome injury. As Alvin fled, Quan, driven by fear and adrenaline, ran in the direction of his home, the gun in hand. The chase led to a final, fatal confrontation, where Alvin emerged from a bush, only to be met with a panicked, fatal shot from Quan. This tragic end, marked by confusion and terror, leaves us pondering the fine lines between self-defense 
and excessive force. So you say he had a total of three gunshot wounds? A total of four. Four, so three at that time, and then the, then the final shot. So he was still after you with all those bullets yeah. in him? Yes. Yeah. Then he was still fighting. Damn. Still fighting. So, you know, but cocaine do that to you when you high on crack. When you high on crack, what, what they call that shit? They call it when you have people, because my, my lawyer at the time, she tried to get a, a, an expert witness, and he was a former college that, that specialized in cocaine intoxication because cocaine intoxication because dude was extremely high, right? According to his blood work, he was like high, like through the roof high, right? And they wanted to she wanted to bring this pathologist in to testify that his ability to do what he did was because of the drugs that cocaine gives you that superhuman, bizarre and aggressive behavior. But the the, the courts their, their reason for denial was that they didn't have the money to pay for it. Kwan, after that very last shot and, and him dying in the bushes, what did you do after that? I ran home. And whenever you went home, did I you ran home. Did you call the police or hide the gun? What, what was your strategy? No. When I ran home, I dropped the gun in the bush because my mama, she, she can't allow no guns in her house, right? So I dropped the gun in the bushes in front of my house. It was like an evergreen bush. Dropped the gun in the bush, and I came in, and I went to go take a shower, and I noticed that my mouth was busted, my nose was busted, and my face was bleeding where he bit me. So I was like, damn, I got to get took my clothes off. As I took my clothes off, I noticed that my clothes had blood on them. I didn't know it at the time, but... The fight was so up close and personal, so intense that his blood had soaked through my winter clothes all the way down to my underwear. It soaked through three layers of clothes, a pair of jeans, a pair of long arms, and a pair of drawers, and all the way down to my skin. I took, <laughs> show you how dumb I was, I took my clothes and put them in the clothes hamper, and I took my jacket because and I just wasn't thinking right, right? I took my jacket and was like, I'm going to have to wear it tomorrow. So I put it in the washing machine and went and took a shower and, and, and just laid there. As I got out of the shower, I just laid there. I had a, a ceiling fan in my room. And as I took the shower, I just laid in the bed looking at the ceiling fan, replaying events in my head. And tears just rolled down my eyes, man. Yeah. So I was like, damn. Yeah, I started coming... When it actually happened, it actually started coming to me. You know what I mean? And I started coming down off that, off that adrenaline and, and, the, and the, scene, the realization of what happened, just it, it came to me. And that's when it hit me. So, Kwan, how far was the body from your house? I would say maybe 300 feet. That's a rough guess. Kwan suggests that Alvin's astonishing ability to fight despite multiple gunshot wounds might have been fueled by drug intoxication. Although we lack access to court documents and cannot confirm the presence of a toxicology report, Kwan recounts how his lawyer attempted to introduce an expert witness, a pathologist specializing in cocaine intoxication, to testify about the drug's potential to induce superhuman strength and aggressive behavior. This line of defense was unfortunately not pursued due to the court's financial constraints. There's also a question of what exactly happened in the aftermath of both parties fleeing Alvin's home. 
To quote a news article reporting the day after the incident, Alvin Foster's body was discovered after a neighbor who lives two doors from the Fosters called police, saying a beaten man was at their front door. The victim's body was found at the front of the neighbor's house, and police believe Foster had run to the neighbor's door seeking help after being shot. This put Quan's recollection of the events into question. Did he really run away from Alvin, or did he in fact pursue him to finish off the job? Although we can't provide an alternative viewpoint from any witnesses, one thing is true. The close proximity of the crime scene to Quan's home, a mere 300 feet, shows just how personal this confrontation was. Seeing this altercation through Kwan's eyes shows us just how raw and emotional that situation must have been. Unfortunately for Kwan, the consequences of his actions in that moment of panic and fear eventually caught up to him. So the scenario that you just told us is the scenario that you used in court? Yeah. And the prosecutor's are basically saying that, what are they saying, that you brought the gun and you just killed him, or do they acknowledge that that you, you were in a struggle? No, no, yeah, they acknowledged all that. And uh, he gave me the first three shots. He said where the first-degree murder was, was that I supposedly had chased him down and killed him, and I didn't chase him down. Where was there evidence to show you that? Know? Where was the evidence to show that you chased him down? Well, I had, I had, um, I had made some statements, right? And I was coerced. I had some. I had made some statements that was coerced by some black police officers. Made it seem like that they were trying to help me and all that. And when I told the story, they just didn't believe. Because at first, I wasn't talking to them. I think they questioned me for eight hours. Eight hours. They picked me up that morning, like around ten. And when they brought me out and took me to the, the reenactment, it was dark outside. So it was like around eight or nine o'clock. I did make some statements, though. Yeah. Do you think that looking back that the victim, Alvin, there was actually nobody there to buy drugs? That was all just a way to rob you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When all this got settled down to where the, the police investigated and they questioned you and, and they got the information they needed, did they come in and say we're charging with first degree murder? The detectives who actually interviewed me, they tried to give me a, a manslaughter. But the head guy that was over the major case squad at that time, he was like, no, nah, let's shoot for first degree murder. And we're gonna we're gonna also charge him with second degree felony murder. And uh, and that's what they did. At that time Robert McCulloch was in office. He was a vicious prosecutor, man. He, he controlled St. Louis County's prosecutors, and if you was black and you came out there with a murder, whatever, they always shot for the highest and would try to uh, plea bargain you all uh, and get as high as much time out of you as they could. And that's what happened to me. What were your charges? I was charged with count one, first degree murder, count two, armed criminal action, count three, and the alternative to count one, second degree felony murder and count four on criminal action. And they took me to trial on all four counts, which they didn't elect, which means the way they charged me was they didn't elect on which one they was going to proceed so that I could form a defense. They just took me to trial on all of it and basically throwing some stuff at the wall to see what stuck. It's my understanding that they don't, after the Fonville case, they don't even charge people like that anymore. 
Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a they don't even charge. Juan, did you yeah. you wind up getting found guilty of all those charges you just named out? Yeah, first degree. Yep. Yep. No, I only had one murder, but they took me to trial on two murders and two armed criminal acts, which is basically unheard. It's a real, it's a very rare way to charge a person. And as a matter of fact, they don't. The state of Missouri no longer prosecute people like that in the alternative. So what they did was. They pretty much, when I had my jury selections, they excluded almost all the blacks, and I only had two blacks and 10 whites. And I was convicted of first-degree murder and armed criminal action. And what they did was they nollie processed the second-degree felony murder and the armed, and the other armed criminal act, which I, to this day, I still don't know how they did that stuff, but that's what they did. They nollie process. You can only find me guilty of one of, of, of one murder. Though you took me to trial on two murders for one body. Speaking of the jury, what's that sitting in trial and looking over at all of those people, your peers, so to speak, that are going to be the ones that say control your life, basically? What's that like looking over at the jury? They were not my peers. They were older white people. One lady was so old, she slept during most of my trial. And see this, it was like December 16th when they took me to trial. So they think well, they were really trying to just get it over with so they can go finish the Christmas shop. That's, that's what it felt like. And at this time, the media was real deaf on the young black males who sold drugs. And so some of them, like the jury foreman, people scowled at me. You know what I mean? And when I was point to my man, what's up with doing it? She would act like she didn't see it, but she knew exactly what was going on. She didn't care. She was friends with the prosecutor, worked with the prosecutor's wife. The prosecutor and the prosecutor's wife would come over her and her husband's house, or they would have dinner, or they would go out and they would double date together. They knew each other. How'd you know this? And she said it. She told me. That's the only way I can know. Yeah. What was your reaction in the courtroom whenever the they came out and they said guilty on first degree murder? I knew I knew what they was going to do because when the state rested, my lawyer called one witness, and he was supposed to come and say that Mr. Foster, who was my favorite, had tried to pawn that very same gun to him the day before for some drugs, and he didn't take it because he didn't know if it was a murder on it. He knew it was stolen because Mr. Foster he also did a lot of burglaries in the neighborhood. And so she was like, I'm, I'm going to call you to come, but I don't want you to volunteer no information. Just answer the questions that I asked you. And he said, yes, ma'am. And she put him on the stand, and she asked him like 60, 65 questions. None of the questions had anything to do with the crime itself. And then when and then she rested. So I didn't have no defense. She didn't even try to help me. She didn't even try to help me, man. The list of multiple charges where charges are listed as in the alternative of is known as charging in the alternative, and it is a common prosecutor tactic throughout the United States. It's where prosecutors can still get a criminal conviction if they end up being able to prove some of the most serious parts of the crime, but not all of it. While prosecutors are authorized to charge in the alternative, charging in the alternative in a single count creates the risk that a defendant may plead guilty to the lesser of the offenses. It's definitely a tactic that prosecutors under the leadership of Robert McCulloch would have used. 
Bob McCulloch was the St. Louis County prosecutor and his career spanned nearly three decades from 1991 to 2019. Few figures have been as polarized as Bob McCulloch, a name synonymous with controversy in the prosecutor's office. His approach to prosecution, frequently seen as aggressive and unyielding, has been both lauded and lambasted, making him a figure of enduring debate and discussions around justice and prosecutorial conduct. His handling of the 2014 Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson by a police officer in particular drew significant scrutiny and criticism, casting a long shadow over his career, especially with regards towards racial discrimination. It's also true about the media being deaf about this case in a discriminatory manner. This is evidenced by the severe lack of articles that were available at the time. In fact, we were only able to find three news clippings about the murder, all of which are pretty short. At the end of the day, Kwan was sentenced to life without parole, and his journey in prison was about to begin. After the break, we discover exactly what prison has been like for Kwan. How's your time in prison been? Was it very difficult at first to get used to? No, this was my, this is actually my second bit, my second time in prison. The first time I went to prison was right? For stealing the car. I stole the car. I got caught joyriding and stole the car. First time ever getting in any trouble. And they did a PSI on me, right? And my father and stepmother begged the people to send me to prison. <laughs> What? They didn't demand it to me. They, they the, the guy who was doing the PSI, the pre-sentence investigation, my father's stepmother pushed him to send me to prison. I was find that out years later. I didn't know at the time, but yeah. uh, so in prison. So I was in the, I ended up going to prison on that first uh, stealing of a motor, stealing of a motor vehicle. Yeah. So, Quan, it's. Year 2023 right now. You've been locked up since 1991, and you got life without parole. Yeah. How do you deal with that, knowing that you're going to die in prison? At, at first, I just lived like everybody else. I put one foot in front of the other and moved forward. Right? I've, I've always, since I've been in prison, I've always read. And something that started really, because I was, when I first caught the time, I was really depressed, bro. You know what I mean? By the time I was 21, I was going to be dead or in prison for the rest of my life. Every, I'm telling you, everything that they ever said, I was a mistake. You know, I was only here because the rubber busted. They didn't want me piss on me. You know what I mean? Because my father used to want to say, well, piss on me. <laughs> that was one of his favorite sayings when you're mad. So I was like, okay, fuck it. I'm going to just end it. You know what I mean? That's just how I felt. I'm not going to do all this time. I'm going to go up. I'm, and a woman, she was uh, she was gone. She saw me. They had isolated me after I was convicted. They, they had isolated me and had me under observation and stuff like that. I, but that's normal protocol, right? And I guess she saw me and she was like, I, I don't know what it was. I guess she read me, right? And she brought me a book, right? She brought me a book. She just gave me a book, right? I'm like, what the fuck am I do with this book? I don't want this book. You know what I mean? I couldn't even read that way. I could read because I learned how to read on my first day. But I'm like, I read this book, but it was something about the title of this book that kind of drew me in, right? And the name of the book was Changing Images of Psychological Slavery, right? And by Dr. Naeem Magnor. 
And I read the book, right? And I realized something. It, it was like somewhere off of me was like, damn, you actually fucked up for real. You fucked up in ways that's beyond your comprehension. And it ain't all your fault. See what I'm saying? Knowing that my brokenness was not all my fault and that it could be fixed was what kept me from killing myself, you know? And from that moment, I've been on a, a journey, if you will, you know? Do you leave, uh, hold out hope that something's going to happen, you are going to get out? Absolutely. For a while, I didn't. But all my friends that had life without, they all got out. You were a juvenile? No, I was not. I was a minor, but I was not a juvenile. How old were you? Um, I was 20 years old. 20? 20. I was 20, yeah. So I was a minor. I had a minor on my driver's license and all that. All of them got out, and every last one of them is doing very well. They're all, they own their own companies. They're doing very well. They're, they're, a lot of them are their own roofing companies. They own trucking companies. They're doing very well. Good. Not one of them, not one has came back. These were guys who I jumped in front of knives for. We jumped on people together. We, we ate out the same bowl. We went to bed hungry together. They're, they all are out there doing excellent. They, they, matter of fact, they're doing so well that they don't even have to really report for parole. They just call in. Like many prisoners who were given life without parole, Juan experienced the depths of depression when he first entered prison. With thoughts of ending it all while being in isolation, he was given hope in the form of a book from a prison officer. This book, Chains and Images of Psychological Slavery by Dr. Naeem Akbar, became a poignant moment for him. The book is about freeing your mind from the chains of mental slavery, and Kwan found a turning point from reading it. To quote Kwan, knowing that his brokenness was not his own fault and that it could be fixed was what kept him motivated. This is reflected in one of the quotes from the book. That is, the mind's possibilities are limited by its concepts of its potential. It seems as if Quan has managed to find a form of freedom by freeing his mind, and although his chances of leaving prison are next to none, he still holds on hope that he could get out. This strong mentality has also driven Quan to believe that from behind bars, he can still fight for what he believes in. Speaking of parole, if you could, because you have life without parole, so you don't go in front of the parole board, right? No. If the legislators could hear this podcast, which is very possible, and they're the ones that are that make the laws and have the power to give you freedom, what would you say to them? I would say that they need to go back and rethink uh, their wish for mass incarceration. I think they need to go back and rethink and use the studies because all of the studies support this. And not only the studies support this, but the people that have gotten out. Also, the, the, the behavior patterns that they are exhibiting support this, right? They need to raise the juvenile age to the experts, say, to 25 or 26 and let us out and let us out, man. And they need to abolish life without parole because a lot of us got it because we were poor. We were black, uneducated, and had parents that did not understand how the system actually worked. 
So they was in no way able to help us, right? And there is a such thing that's called disparities in sentence where this white guy named Fonville who has a case exactly like mine. The only difference is that he was the robber who killed the drug dealer. I was a drug dealer who killed my robber. Right. But exactly like my Fonville called this guy to his mama's house, lured him down into the basement, and shot him in the face with a shotgun, single-shot shotgun, right? He got his guy, and that guy was laying down on the basement floor, bleeding, blinded by the bug shots and extreme pain. Fonville calmly loaded, reloaded the single-shot shotgun, put it point-blank to his face, and pulled the trigger again. He ended up trying to cover up the murder by him and the girls that were with him trying to cover up the murder by killing the woman that the other guy had brought up. When he came in to sell him drugs, he left his girlfriend in the car. So after they killed Morales, and went out got the girl, brought her down in the basement, killed her. They ended up cleaning up the crime scene, put the dude in the car, and took him to, to, to dispose of the body. On the way to dispose of the body, they hit a kid, killed the kid, right? Or, or even seriously injured, the kids don't really say whether they killed the kid or seriously injured the kid. But hit a kid, right? Hit a child, ran him over, didn't stop, kept going. Got to where they was going, poured gasoline all over the body in the car and set the car on fire with the body in there. Do you know he got 15 years for wow. killing Morales? Wow. And this case is exactly like mine, but it was a white man that killed a man of color. Morales was a, was a Mexican or Latino. So believe it or not, I've only been doing this podcast since May, and I have two separate podcasts that are identical. One's white, one's black, and the white guy got 12 years, the black guy got life without. So I already, just on my podcast alone, I've already seen that. But the only difference was the white guy actually tied up the victim, and then the victim got untied. They had mm-hmm. a shootout, he died. The other guy just ran into him, there was a struggle, and the gun went off. So it's a big difference but the same no i get it yeah it's interesting that kwan brings up the case of todd fonville on april 11 2011 todd fonville and his girlfriend were hanging out with his friend at their house in kansas city smoking meth at some point fonville and his friend talked about robbing jose morales one of their associates who occasionally sold them drugs they decided they would ask Morels to come over and sell the two ounces of meth. The plan was while Morels was there, Fonville would rob him and appear to rob his friend too before fleeing. When Morels arrived, his girlfriend was in the car with him. She stayed in the car while he went into the house and downstairs into the basement where Fonville surprised Morels and shot him in the face with a sawed-off shotgun, blinding him. As Morels fell to his knees, Fonville walked over to him reloaded the shotgun and shot him in the side of the head, killing him. They then lured Morels' girlfriend over to the basement and Fonville shot her too. All three of them wrapped up the bodies of Morels and his girlfriend in blankets and loaded them in Morels' car. Fonville was at the wheel and they hit a small child that walked out from behind a parked car. Luckily, the child suffered only minor abrasions. They eventually pulled off the road and Fonville poured gasoline over the victim's bodies and lit the car on fire. The state charged Fonville with first-degree murder, or in the alternative, second-degree felony murder for Morales' death. First-degree murder, or in the alternative, second-degree murder for Morales' girlfriend's death. Two counts of armed criminal action, 
leaving the scene of a motor vehicle accident and knowingly burning. Although Kwan was correct about all the other details of Fonville's case, he was actually sentenced to life without parole for the charge of first-degree murder. The 15 years that Kwan refers to in Fonville's case actually refers to the sentence he received for the alternative charge of second-degree murder. Kwan points out the discrimination in this case, but it actually exists in a larger injustice at hand, that of mass incarceration, which Kwan is very passionate in opposing. Mass incarceration refers to the reality that the United States criminalizes and incarcerates more of its own people than any other country in the history of the world and inflicts that enormous harm primarily on its most vulnerable among us, or people of color. In 2018, more than 10.7 million people entered into U.S. jails and prisons. The equivalent of locking up every single person in Portugal, Greece, or Sweden. On any given day, nearly 2 million people are behind bars in this country, and 4.5 million people are on probation or parole under the quote-unquote supervision of the state. The majority of the people we criminalize and incarcerate are black and Latino, even though these two groups constitute less than one-third of the national population. Normally at this point in our conversation, I ask my guests if they have a final message for the audience. This time, Kwan had something he wanted to ask me about. Kwan, yeah. I, I appreciate you talking with me. It's I do... Life without parole is a harsh one, especially given the fact that I think that the details of yours is it's not like you, some innocent person died. It was somebody that was high on crack and trying to attack you. I think life without is definitely a little harsh for that. But man, I yeah. hopefully somebody out there hears it. Maybe you get some kind of push and things change for you. But yeah. the system is one of the things one of the things that I'm trying to do is I would like and maybe you can help me with this or your listeners. I would like to start a support group. I would like to start a support group where I can communicate with people and kind of have them help me learn more about mass incarceration and so I can become a better advocate about mass incarceration and help me work to change laws. So, you know, because of the, the... I'll give you a minute to, to tell folks that are listening how they can get a hold of you, your DOC number, and through, whether it's through JP or Securus. Go ahead. Yeah, my name is uh, Kowan Johnson, K-W-A-N Johnson. My, my prison inmate number is 168-186, and I'm at the Jefferson City Correctional Center in Missouri. You can contact me by going to Securus.net and look it up, put my information in. You know, my tablet, they don't allow personal letters to come, no fault of mine, but they don't, you got to go through the, you got to need to get on the tablet. So basically all they have so, to do is go to securus.net, put in your DOC number, and then they can email you directly. Juan, I hope the best for you. Maybe somebody will reach out to you and you can at least start something that helps others if in the future. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate that. And hopefully me and you can keep in contact too, man. Yeah. Call me if you need something. Okay, buddy. All right, man. Thank you. All right. Take it easy, man. See
on the next episode of Voices of a Killer. No violence, no drug or alcohol abuse in your parents. You went to church. Everything was perfect. Oh, that turned me into a, a monster. He was like beating his head off the steering wheel when I got there. She looked at me with this look of, of love, frustration, fear, compassion. It, I, I've never seen a look like it. She believed that he would have killed her if I hadn't have stepped in. I spent my whole time in here really wanting to be mad about not getting off free. That's a wrap on this episode of Voices of a Killer. I want to thank Juan for sharing his story with us today. His ability to be open and honest is what makes this podcast so special. If you want to listen to these episodes weeks in advance, you can now do so by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash voices of a killer. There you will get access to raw interviews, unseen news coverage, and unique correspondence with the guests of Voices of a Killer. Head over to patreon.com slash voices of a killer to support the podcast. Your support is what keeps us passionate about bringing these stories to you. A big shout out to Sonic Futures, who handled the production, audio editing, music licensing, and promotion of this podcast. If you want to hear more episodes like this one, make sure to visit our website at voicesofakiller.com. There you can find previous episodes, transcripts, and additional information about the podcast. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your feedback helps us improve and reach new listeners. Thank you for your support, and we can't wait to share more stories with you in the future. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Toby, and we'll see you next time on Voices of a Killer. Hey listeners, Toby here. We have a special announcement just for you. Voices of a Killer is launching its very own Patreon page, an exclusive platform that allows you to dive even deeper into the darkest corners of these gripping tales. By becoming a patron, you'll gain access to a wealth of exciting bonus content and behind the scenes exclusives that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Picture this, at our lowest tier, you can have access to further content with exclusive letters, photos and correspondence that have never been seen by the public before at our producer tier you will have the opportunity to engage with the team participate in q a polls and receive updates on upcoming episodes and developments this tier is perfect for those who have a keen interest in the production process and want to be a part of shaping the show's future you'll also have your name read at the end of our latest episodes how cool at the next tier, you'll have all this and the opportunity to join in our once-in-a-month video chat Q&A session with me, the host, and our production team, allowing you to engage directly with the creators and further satisfy your curiosity. And for our premium tier, you'll have all this and the ability to listen to exclusive unedited raw interviews to really hear the true voices of our podcast. So if you're ready to unlock a world of extra content, head over to patreon.com slash voices of a killer now and choose the tier that best suits your craving for true crime. Your support will not only fuel our passion for storytelling, but also enable us to bring you even more thrilling narratives 
and the voices that are waiting to be heard on Voices of a Killer.